the more that we know one another, the more that we understand our heart's desire, what we love, what we value, the better that we can actually engage in deep civic conversations. Hey, uh, Adam Davis here. In this episode of The Detour, we're thinking about civic love. Civic love, you say? What's that strange thing? How exactly does civic go with love? And what might you mean putting those two words together? Let me say first that it wasn't our creation or idea, the phrase civic love. It comes from people at the National Public Housing Museum, including Lisa Yun Lee, who talked with me in August of 2023 about where the phrase comes from and what it means to her. Lisa laughs a lot during this conversation, but you'll hear right away that she's serious about the effort to help people recognize how our public or civic lives and our personal or private lives are more connected and intertwined than we sometimes think. Also how beauty and justice might be more connected than we think. And how what happens in our kitchen might be more connected to the public square than we think. It's these kinds of connections that lie underneath the National Public Housing Museum's open source toolkit called 36 Questions for Civic Love, a toolkit that we at Oregon Humanities have used as part of two pedal palooza rides in Portland over the past two summers. During the second of these rides in 2023, we were joined by J.R. Reimut, who came in from Enterprise, Oregon, to ride along and talk about her own civic love project, Haunt Camp which she calls an art prank. In the second half of this episode, you'll hear JR say that civic love is a totally new concept to her. But throughout the whole of her conversation with Roselle Medina, which includes talk about community, responsibility, laughter, creativity, and play, and also some talk about the Barbie movie, you'll probably recognize in JR and Roselle's words a deep understanding of and commitment to Civic love. The term civic love may be new for most or even all of us, but if you're listening to this, then there's a good chance that civic love is not only familiar to you, but also inside you, animating how you move about your kitchen, your community, and the world. Interspersed throughout this episode, you'll hear a number of different voices reading many of the 36 questions about civic love. These questions are being read by Oregon Humanities board members and friends who gathered in mid-October at our office in downtown Portland. We only ask that they read the questions, and we deliberately did not ask them to provide answers or responses. The responses, as usual, are on you. But let's see. Here's Lisa. So thanks, Lisa, for uh, joining us on the phone to talk for the detour and to talk about uh, civic love. I wanted to ask you right at the start, with the National Public Housing Museum, you helped develop these 36 questions about civic love. And I was thinking, should we talk about those questions and about civic love, or should we engage in answering some of those questions? What do you think is a better way to, to explore that? Uh, I love the question that you just asked. And if you know me, you know, of course, that we should always talk, not instead of talking about stuff, we should actually do the thing. You know okay. what I'm saying? Absolutely. So I think we should do the thing and then also maybe, you know, theorize and think a little bit about it. Okay, great. So, uh, hey, Lisa, what's your favorite kitchen smell? <laughs> 
it has to be the smell of a pot of rice. And ever since I was little, I just love that smell. We always had a pot of rice going, and, you know, that's my jam. What about you, Adam? What's your favorite kitchen smell? I think it's uh, garlic right right after it hits the oil, uh, which is the start mm. of most most dinner uh, at our place. So I think that's it. There are, there are plenty of unfavorite kitchen smells that I don't want to talk about, really, but that's the favorite. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, is, Adam, let me ask you one, which is... Um, when you wake up, what's the first sound that you hear? Yeah, usually it's, so we live in a part of Southeast Portland that's pretty quiet uh, during the night, but it's usually some sort of car sound, whether it's a car door or a car pulling out or occasionally a beep. Uh, well, it, it's rarely our dog. It's usually a car that wakes me up. Uh, <laughs> how about you? Yeah, well, when I am with my doggy who is Portuguese water dog who I love it always is the dog because he like sort of sits right up he looks at me and he goes oh, 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 oh. <laughs> because he wants me to wake up and so but when I'm not with my dog it usually is my alarm which is happens it's set to be a Lupe Fiasco song okay. so which is really sad because I love Lupe Fiasco, but when <laughs> now when I hear that song, it triggers me, right. and I don't, you know, I get all stressed out. So, a, note to everyone in the world: never pick your favorite song to be your alarm. Yeah, it's a negative association. So we we've just asked each other two of the thirty-six questions about civic love, and it's interesting even thinking about these two. I want to follow your encouragement not only to talk about the questions, but think about them a little, because yeah. civic love, at least right off the bat. If I hadn't been through this before, I would think, okay, we're going to talk about civics. Uh, and these first two questions we've talked about, kitchen smell and what wakes you up in the morning, those both sound pretty domestic. Yeah. So can I just ask you, like, wh what do you think about the relation between these questions that seem anchored in the domestic or home experience and civic love? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I definitely believe that the kind of binary between um, private and public home and sort of um, civic space is one that has been constructed, you know, through history. Mm -hmm. And at times that divide has been, I think, very liberatory. And at other times it's been completely oppressive. Like if we think about sort of the... Um, push of women into the so-called domestic space and sort of the valuation of reproductive labor in sort of domestic spaces versus productive labor, you know? And so I think there was a very intentional move to break down those barriers between the public and the private. And because so much of our lives, our sense of self um, is created first in our home spaces. And so in civic love, there's the effort for us to get to know one another deeply and truly and fully with a kind of capaciousness, which is not just, hey, what do you think about gun control? Mm -hmm. Or are you pro against book banning? But before I ask that question to you and engage in a truly civic conversation about book banning, I might actually really want to know, like, who was your third grade teacher? And what is the first smell that you wake, you know, sound that you wake up to? And it's really grounded in this notion that the more that we know one another, the more that we understand our 
sort of heart's desire, what we love, what we value, the better that we can actually engage in deep civic conversations. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, it feels like it's even what you just said feels like it's even in the phrase civic love, where it's putting together two words that that often feel like they're not put together. Like civic doesn't feel very lovey most of the time. It feels kind of dry. Uh, yeah, and you know, there a lot of this is grounded in the humanities work of theater. I mean, there's a whole theory of radical generosity in the theater world, which is, you know, you don't sort of, you, you know, when you, and that theory is when you see a character on stage, and I'm going to pick maybe the most despicable kind of character, like a Nazi, right? Uh-huh. Or if you see somebody who is an immigration border patrol person, um, in truly great theater, that particular character is not just a caricature mm-hmm. of those things that that person does, but you're trying to represent that character as a full human being, as a father as well, as somebody who was a son, as somebody who also like gets down to KRS-One or whatever it may be. And this um, idea of presenting people in radical generosity is where we really took civic love from, you know, like I knew of this from uh, kind of humanities reading that I had done and thinking about like, how would we apply that notion in theater to the work that we're doing at the National Public Housing Museum is actually how we really came up with civic love. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think, to go from something uh, performative, no, theater performative, but also kind of participatory performative, I think the kind of theater you're talking about, but to go to something that is really not about the spectator at all. It's about two people interacting with each other just for that interaction. Is that how I... Am I understanding correctly the way you hope that the questions would be used? Yeah, no, 100%. Can I ask, so that this started early in the pandemic. We're now, in many ways, at least we seem to think we're sort of out of the worst parts of the pandemic. How's the recipe looking now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, even more relevant and important now. I mean, I think just because as a society, we've really just lost the skill of talking to one another as opposed to talking at one another. It's a kind of civic muscle that we have not practiced because we don't also see it practiced, whether it's in government or on television anymore, anywhere. I mean, it's just people screaming at each other and really digging their heels into their positions and sort of like really um, ideologically, you know, sort of pushing a position at someone rather than deeply engaging with one another, you know? And so this idea of how do you help us all develop a kind of muscle again to talk to one another and to listen because it's a really, it's a, as much as a talking tool, this is really a tool for active listening. And you really aren't supposed to, one of the core principles of civic love is even if you want to, you're not supposed to like actually talk back to the other person, you know, <laughs> like you really are just listening. And then um, sort of in the questions, there's a toolkit that you can sort of download off the, you know, our website but you'll see at like at every kind of 12 questions, there is a moment that you can sort of reflect and it comes to a question, something like, 
what do you notice that we have in common with one another? And it's sort of based solely on, you know, what we've talked about. But the amazing thing is, like, you'll have two complete strangers that have not met one another and you're talking and you realize there always are things that you really can find in common with one another. And, you know, something that you'll see with civic love is the questions, they start to amplify and it moves into questions like, what privilege do you know you have? And when did you become aware of that privilege? Because you know, so much of our conversation now around race and class and gender privilege is something that we really need to be talking and thinking about as a society. But it's really hard to just bring people together and say like, hey, let's talk about white privilege, right? But that's question 34. Mm-hmm. And so before you've talked about that, you have talked about who your most memorable teacher was, what scares you, you know, like what, if anything, is too serious to be joked about. And so you really know a lot about something and somebody, and you also have told somebody a lot about yourself. And so this kind of, these, a lot of the civic questions that you were talking about, that you were saying that are in the public sphere, mm-hmm. that as a society we should be talking about, whether it's the social welfare state, housing insecurity, policing, public education, you know, social determinants of health, whatever they may be, in order for us to be talking about them, we have to be willing to be vulnerable with one another. And usually we think about home and domestic spaces as the place that we can be vulnerable. And then you kind of put on your armor and you go out into this sort of world, you know. But I think in order for us to truly grapple with these big civic issues, we have to be willing to be vulnerable with one another. And that's something that this project is really also trying to help us develop and kind of, you know, build this kind of dialogic space, for lack of a better word, where we can be vulnerable with one another in order to really honestly and truly talk about these issues. Yeah. How how are people, how have people over the last few years, like who's encountering these questions in this uh, experiment and how are they coming to it? Well... First of all, we do our own programming, and so we use a lot of these questions um, at the beginning. And so of our of just our public programming, getting to know um, either people who are musicians, we're about to do a big concert in Millennium Park with public mm-hmm. housing residents. The way that we have heard that it's been used is just really poignant. So, for example, in a partnership with the Hawaii Humanities yeah. um, Council, they've used it actually in their work in prisons for cellmates who first come together in order for them to get to know one another. You know, they actually have been using it there, which I think is just a really beautiful way that it's been used and also part of their work for decarceration and thinking about the humanity of people who are in prison, what it means and what are the needs of people there to also have meaningful dialogue and conversation with one another. And so it's been used in a lot of different contexts now. And our joy is to have this toolkit online to ask people to download it and to use it in whatever way that they want to use it. And we've also heard that sometimes at what is called Thanksgiving, it's also Indigenous People's Day in the United States, people have used it at family gatherings because they're like, we don't know what to talk about with our family. That's meaningful. And so people sometimes have just done it in their home context too with their family. I was thinking about what you said about 
the early questions especially are sort of let's just get to know each other as people uh, and that they kind of build in intensity and maybe in uh, that, it, that some of them might be tough to talk about right off the bat, but they're easier once you have connected a bit. And I wanted to ask you the question about disciplining a neighbor's child. So question 32, would you discipline <laughs> a neighbor's child? You're laughing. I like the sound of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard one. Let me ask you first. Would you discipline a neighbor's child? This might be, <laughs> I don't know if this is fit for the air or not. Uh, my son, when he was about 14, had a couple friends over and uh, two of them had been in the bathroom and then they, uh, at our place, and then they left right after that. And I happened to walk in there and there was, uh, let's just say the seat was not clean. Uh, and so I said, Jacob, which, my son, which way did, would they, did they go? And I went out and I got them and I brought them back. <laughs> I brought the two of them into the bathroom and I said, hey, like, look at this. This is unacceptable. Like, you do this, you got to clean it up. And it may feel strange to you right now. You're going to thank me later, but you got to clean it up now. And, uh, you know, can't let this happen again. And again, you're going to thank me later. And all three of them, I think, felt terrible. Uh, but I, that to me felt like disciplining a neighbor's child. And I still feel like it was, if strange, still the right thing to do. <laughs> oh, know. yeah. And I'm sure whoever that kid encountered in the future is thanking you for right. that, Adam. Right. Right. <laughs> I promise you. It was, yeah, I, I did feel yeah. like an angry old guy. But how about you, disciplining a neighbor's child? I feel like in my 20s and maybe even in my 30s, I would never have done that because I would feel like that's their job, that's not my job. But as I have grown as an activist, as a community organizer, I think my idea of who is my child and who are our kind of chosen children and how we should be caring for one another as a sort of larger family has made me more willing to feel like, oh, of course I would, because not only the flip side of disciplining a neighbor's child is also like looking out and caring for them, you know? And I sort of feel like also in my 20s and 30s, I may not have been so eager and willing to care and reach out and to sort of be there for a stranger or someone who's not my child, but now definitely I would. I would have zero anxiety <laughs> about it in both ways. Would you discipline a neighbor's child? Name three things we appear to have in common. What do you keep in your cupboard that someone who raised you also kept in theirs? You know, a minute ago you used the word activist uh, yeah. to describe yourself. And I was thinking about the relationship between that term activist or activism and civic love. And I guess, what do you mean when you say activist? Yeah, that's a really lovely question, Adam. I mean, I usually have a way that I answer it, and then you kind of threw me for a loop by thinking about how I would link it to civic love, because usually I sort of talk about this great quote from Tony Cade Bambara, hmm. where she's a you know, poet and philosopher, writer, and she said that, you know, the job of a cultural worker is to make the revolution irresistible. Hmm. And I 
see sort of very much my work as a cultural worker in that way, which is I try to bring as much collective joy and wonder and curiosity to whatever I'm making or producing or thinking about or, you know, presenting as a public programmer. So that's the kind of uh, metric by which I, I work, you know. When I sort of talk about activism, I think it's um, maybe this way that I approach the world in that way of sort of, you know, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. <laughs> like, uh-huh. I really deeply believe that there should be a theoretical analysis to whatever we're doing. I mean, I think about, like, how I make my coffee with a kind of theoretical analysis of, like, an Adorno essay or whatever it may uh-huh. be, you know? But, um, but that also that you have a deep, deep, overflowing optimism that our individual and collective actions can transform the world and make it a better place for all of us. Mm-hmm. And that kind of praxis, which is another really important word for me, mm-hmm. of where theory and action sort of come together, is what I think is like, like the golden mean of activism. Mm-hmm. I like the emphasis on joy uh, and that you're thinking about that, uh, this idea of irresistibility is is, is really great. I, I want to ask you a couple more questions as we move towards a close, and I want to do that in part with understanding in mind and in part to just keep pushing a little bit. Question 19, what, if anything, is too serious to be joked about? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's one which is so touchy. It's almost one where, like, you really, before you get to that, you kind of have to ask all of the questions. But Uh because we know one another, I'll answer it. I personally don't think there's anything that is off limits for joking. But because I come from the sort of whole house tradition, and what that means is, like, this deep belief in humor and laughing as a root of things, I believe that there's certain jokes which are made with one another so you're laughing with somebody and then there's certain jokes that you're mm-hmm. laughing at somebody. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the kind of difference, you know? But I do believe humor is a critical tool as this act of resistance, mm-hmm. whether it was like after 9-11 and the improv group here, Second City, was like the first group to make a joke about it and to like break an ice so that people could actually collectively laugh with one another and sort of talk about this, you know, terrible, horrific thing that had happened um, to black humor and which has always been also used as a tool of resistance against white supremacy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty good with everything as long as it's a good joke that you're asking people to laugh with and not at. What about you? Um, I think I agree that Nothing is too serious to be joked about. I mean, I come from a tradition. So my background uh, culturally, religiously, is I come from a line of Jews who are, uh, (laughs) you know, who are given to laughing about terrible things. And I inherited that. But yeah, Jewish humor is a good one. Oh, I just interrupted you. (laughs) No, which is good. I mean, I would say, though, that I thinking about this question actually pushes me back to where we started, which is the difference between the home and the civic or the home and public. Because I think if I'm being honest about where I really am comfortable laughing at anything, 
and joking about anything. It's with the people I know best. And that the more I move towards a civic space or a public space, the more I'm sort of filtering, can I joke about this here? Can I laugh about this here? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of vulnerability. I agree. Yeah. Um, so as we're sitting here thinking about laughter and vulnerability, maybe I can move towards a last question or two, but I also want to then invite you. Um, I've, I've been asking more questions than you, which I guess is the way these things shape up. Um, and I have in mind the the gradation of questions, the, the way they move across. So maybe I'll just ask the last one, the 36th question. And before asking that question, can I ask, like, why 36? As someone who was part of the team that worked on this, why, why 36 <laughs> questions about civic love? I know. I mean, we've grappled with that now for a little bit, too. Because 36 maybe is a little bit too much, too. But, <laughs> I mean, we really borrowed the format, right, from that Arthur Aaron yeah you know, it was actually vetted psychological study that, you know, had kind of uh, not just a anecdotal, but there was actually a kind of clinical thing that he had tested. And so we were a little bit like, okay, well, since this exists already in our cultural um, sort of landscape as 36 questions for you to fall in love with somebody, I don't know if you've ever done those questions, but they're sort of interesting too, you know, because it goes to the root of when two people live together. Like it asks you to talk about finances and how you would invest and do you imagine having children and all those kinds of things. Um, there's 36 of those questions, so we just did 36. And yeah. I just want to tell you that we have also done this pro you know, uh, project with less questions because yeah. there's less time or otherwise. But for real, if you do it the way you're supposed to do it, you should be able to answer all 36 mm -hmm. in like 40 minutes or less, sometimes even 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just that sometimes we dwell and you start to go back and forth and you don't, you know, you start to like interrupt one another like I just did. And then you end up like going forever and ever and you can't get through the 36. But uh -huh. I want to encourage people to just really do all 36 and to follow the kind of rules a little bit, like and treat it in that way as a game. That's why it's 36. And better with a stranger than with someone you know? When you encourage someone, do you mostly encourage people to do these with strangers? Yeah, but I think people do it sometimes in the workplace also, mm -hmm. and you always learn really surprising things about people, you know? So yeah. I, don't, I don't think it has to be a stranger. And I think when you start to talk to people that you know and love with these questions, yeah. you realize also how much, you don't know about them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so that so, points I mean, that points to number thirty six. Number thirty six, which is name one thing you learned from this conversation that you want to carry into your life. Oh, yeah. When somebody asks questions about how something came about, I learned that there is a kind of mainstream narrative which even when you're telling the truth you sort of rely on. Mm. But if the question is asked a little differently, that it opens up a whole new world to like an infinite amount of stories of how things come to be. <laughs> so I feel like the way that you asked the questions about where 36 questions came from, it made me understand whole new ways of this project coming to being that I otherwise would never have thought of. Nice. The last thing I want to ask is not a question, it's an invitation. So we've been talking about these 36 questions. I've been asking questions. I wonder as you 
do this work, and when I say this work, I mean far beyond the the 36 questions about civic love, but your work in the world as you understand it. Do you have, like, is there a question or a couple of questions that you feel like lately or in an ongoing way have just continued to live in your head? Mm. I mean, I think that I am constantly thinking about love these days, Mm. what it means, how do we manifest it, and um, I recently read a book by Claire Ditterer called Monster, mm-hmm. and it's about sort of artists and writers who we love, who we think are monsters now, whether mm-hmm. it's Woody Allen to Picasso to, you know, all these people that we've learned about that, like Michael Jackson, and what does it mean for us to now treat them as monsters? And mm-hmm. it's like about cancel culture and things like that. And it has made me reflect a lot about, like, what does it mean to love something in this world? And, of course, as a parent, you know, I have, you know, a 25-year-old and a 21-year-old who are so aggravating me now sometimes. So sometimes I don't even see very often. And it's like, what does it mean to be a parent and to love? And what does it mean to be a daughter? And what does it mean for me? Like, do I love, you know, this nation or not? And what does it mean? And how would you manifest that love? And, you know, Grace Lee Boggs always said, of course I love the United States so much. That's why I want to change it. You know, why would I, I wouldn't be invested in changing this country if I didn't love it, you know? And so for me, this um, sort of deep notion that Bell Hooks and other people have said, like it was so surprising when Bell Hooks came out of the book about love after writing so much about black feminism and civil rights and other things. And I think a lot of people... Um, turn to love, and I'll just maybe end with an Adorno quote, which I love so much, because he's my guy, you know, Um, who I studied in school, and he says, we become free human beings, not by each of us realizing ourselves as individuals, but rather in that we go out of ourselves, enter into relation with others, and in a certain sense, relinquish ourselves to them. Dr. Lisa Young Lee is the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum. She lives in Chicago. What's your favorite kitchen smell? Can you keep a plant alive? What sound wakes you at the start of your day? What's one thing that you've done for self-care recently? You're listening to The Detour with J.R. Ryman. Hi, JR. Hi, Rizal. How's it going? Pretty good. Good. Or just say out in Willowa County, Oregon. Nice. It's a beautiful fall day here in Portland, Oregon, and I'm so glad that we get to talk. Will you will you just introduce yourself for the the wonderful people who are listening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is JR Rymus, and I live out in Enterprise, Oregon. 
It's a pretty small town, kind of as north and as east in Oregon as you can get. We have about 2,000 people in town, and I moved out here after living in a bunch of cities about seven years ago. And my heart has been poured into this project I've called Hunt Camp for the last few years, getting it off the ground. Haunt Camp, that sounds amazing. Can you tell us about Haunt Camp, please? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of ways to describe it, and they're all very sincere directions, and some of them are, are like a little bit more romantic than others, and those are the ones that I try to keep off the grant applications uh, generally. But Haunt Camp is a, an art prank that I run with teenagers out here in this very rural setting. And it's a design-build program where we design and build an avant-garde haunted house for Halloween. We're in our third year of doing programming with high schoolers out here in the county and currently in our second year of creating a really surrealist installation. And when I say haunted house, that's kind of like, um, that's the billing that we're using to get people in the community to come see our production. But really, it's a gigantic joke that we also hope is a little bit scary. Will you, for the, for the people who are not fortunate enough to actually go to the haunted house that you do, to the, to the wonderful art prank that you do out in Wallawa County, will you describe sort of what it was last year to give a sense of, of, of what it's like? Yeah, absolutely. So we're all about really collaborative design. That's what I find the most exciting about it. And so everything is, is collaboratively brainstormed with the kids. And I feel like it's my role to kind of pick out what are what are the best and funniest ideas. And with my career background, I'm also one who knows how to put these ideas into practice as I've spent many years building museum exhibits for large-scale fabrication studios. So last year, our theme ended up being a riff on the Cheesecake Factory restaurant. There's also no Cheesecake Factory restaurant within hours of where we live. But we uh, we created an installation called the Cheesecake Laboratory. And it starts off in a very gaudy restaurant scene and quickly turns into a cheesecake nightmare. You think that you're showing up for a cheesecake eating contest, but it turns out it's the cake that's trying to eat you. And so you show up in these rooms. We had a huge community production, lots of adult volunteers that were working alongside the kids acting in the haunted house. And we kind of go through the restaurant, through the kitchen, through a bathroom scene where things start to really go haywire, which leads to a secret tunnel into a cave sequence in which you actually meet the mad scientist of the laboratory. And then this huge mother monster who's, she's both made out of cheesecake and she's kind of the originator of all the cakes within the installation and also a captive of the cheesecake laboratory. And to escape her, you have to feed her a glow-in-the-dark foam cheesecake and then escape through an oven-mate sequence. I love that there's no cheesecake factory anywhere near the small, wonderful town where you live and that the one cheesecake factory that's ever been there has been haunted by the dexterous minds of, of, of the youth in I, collaboration well, I, with you. I think aesthetically, even though I, there was there's only one, we, we did a brainstorming exercise to come up with our themes. And I had the kids just come up with different places. 
And I was so happy that you were able to sit in on this brainstorming session for this year's installation as well, Roselle. But I had asked the kids to, some of the prompts were, where have you gone on vacation? So I think we just had one student who went to Seattle to the Cheesecake Factory restaurant. But it's saying something about that franchise that it is so visually potent that everyone in our class got it and knew that it'd be the funniest, most interesting one to do (laughs) that year. Yes, the brainstorming session honestly has been a highlight of my year. Um, I had the <laughs> I had the wonderful fortune of 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 going out to um, Wallowa County and being being in the room and actually participating a bit on one of these brainstorming sessions. And if you haven't, there are these things that I feel like there are these things that I feel like grownups stop doing. You know, we as 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 a friend of mine uh, wrote recently in a in a, in a thing that he's writing, we stop laughing at stuff that's not like explicitly funny and and mm. in that process we we lose so much of the charm and the humor of of life and and of imagination and creativity and and being in that room talking about what could be haunted and and by what and how was uh <laughs> it was wonderful it was it was so wonderful um and it's it's something that the listeners can try at home think about what can be haunted by what and how um hey, i am so fortunate that the the group of kids who are our core like youth crew over here they get it they did not like I didn't need to explain to them that I'm actually more interested in it being humorous than it being like super frightening they automatically took it and ran with those concepts and they're just like a complete fount of creativity and it's one of the joys that my job out here is so funny I mean it's, it's absolutely side-spilling Yes. And I think just to provide a little bit of context about why we're having this conversation in this context as we're exploring the concept of civic love, um, you and I were talking months ago about your work. And I was I was also at the same time as I was as I was working with you to plan this this workshop to to highlight and, and draw people into the work that you do and to celebrate the work that you do. Um, I was also organizing this bike ride around civic love, which is a, a concept and a framework and I think part of a social movement that I love. Um, mm-hmm. And as you were describing your work, I had this very, you, you described your work earlier as, a, as an art prank, which I love. And I really, that really resonated with me when we were talking. Uh, when I was a teenager growing up in Oklahoma, um, pranks and and thinking creatively around pranks legitimately 100% saved my life. Um, if it weren't for the creativity <laughs> and the sort of mischievousness and the sort of coyote trickster nature of my friends um, in Oklahoma, like I just, I don't think I would be alive. Uh, we, mm. we took a lot of like our, we took a lot of our, our angst and our frustrations with the world and our sort of, and, our, and also just our silliness. And we took it and we distilled it into like just creative pranks. I think I, I think I shared with you, we used to j- drive up to people and who were, you know, walking down the street and we used to ask them for directions to Parson Street. And when they said, I don't know, we would give them unsolicited in- directions to Parson Street. <laughs> and so those, those kinds of things. And, and as I was thinking about it, I, and as I've been thinking about this framework of civic love, 
I think that like our imagination and our creativity and our, and our, to some extent, like our mischievousness is a necessary part of civic love. You know, for me, civic love is more than just voting. It's more than just, you know, organizing our neighbors around political issues. It's also about, you know, um, it's also about celebrating just like the silliness and the weirdness and the wonderfulness of, of being alive and having an imagination. So I'm curious, like when I, when we were talking and we were planning this workshop, what did you think about the phrase civic love when we first talked about it? Well, I'll also just jump in and say that I, I remember that conversation about teenage pranks and also my teenagerhood really informed me a, wanting to work with youth of that age and also a lot about haunt camp too. And I, I remember I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I had a really good group of very funny, very inventive, energetic friends who were really, I think that we were still kind of in this concept of play like a little bit longer than a lot of our other peers who seem to be, you know, kind of like emulating adulthood, going to parties on the weekend and having all these like really, you know, like similar stories that I didn't find attractive. And it was my group of friends that were crawling around in the storm drain system of this city, exploring the tunnels underneath and also just really running amok in, um, in this really cool city that I grew up in. And I also, part of that, I, I remember the feeling of being a teenager and having ideas that I that I really wanted to be taken seriously for. And I think I remember the times where I had been maybe dissuaded or not encouraged to pursue those things or written off as too young or idealistic. And rather, I wish that I had like kind of received a little bit more encouragement and mentorship and that's really driven like kind of like a lifelong want to interact with kids who are, who are kind of in that same age and place in life and, and really be of service to them. But going back to, to civic love, that was, that was a totally new concept to me when you talked about it. And it did, it also likewise was, was really resonant to me. I think I, I think a lot about the word community a lot. And I think about being in service to community and civic love is just, it's a little bit different than that to me and a little bit more specific. One of the things I love about it is that it, it has, it has the reason for it right in the name because it says that it's love, you know, and it's like thinking about what I do, what you do, what we do within the kind of like a framework of, of like, oh yeah, this is, this is a labor of love. This is the reason why, why it's happening and why we're talking about this concept. That's really powerful to me. And kind of the civic aspect of it, I think there's a lot of, I have a lot of associations with how I think about community, but it's also, to me, it's this word that feels kind of broader, perhaps kind of more like kind of relating to everybody in an area. Sometimes sometimes the word community can feel maybe a little bit more specific or self-selecting. But more importantly, it's also, it's place-based. And I love that because I, I came out to Wallowa County for a reason. And I feel like my work is really ba uh, place-based. I could potentially try doing this project elsewhere, but there is, there's a mix of, potential and need out in these like 
in a place like Wallowa County, like this really rural hamlet that I find, I find that combination like really exciting for, for wanting to go there and try to do something really unusual. Yeah. And another theme of one of one of our first conversations was responsibility. And one of the things that I do sometimes that I, that I haven't done enough, but that I'm excited to do more of is being of service to youth who are doing work around climate and about, and around, um, you know, protecting, um, our ecosystem that sustains us and everyone we love. I was thinking a lot as you were talking that, you know, when I first heard about Haunt Camp and as I heard you speak about it, I was thinking about the the idea of responsibility and the responsibility that we have to future generations, to younger generations, um, and how we choose to act on that. And as you were talking, and, and for me, that's a huge part of civic love, um, mm-hmm. is not only thinking about the here and now, but thinking, you know, it not, not having, you know, moving beyond a nihilistic worldview that there's no future and recognizing like, Hey, there's, there's people counting on a future and counting on a, counting on a beautiful future and hoping for a beautiful future and thinking of ourselves as stewards of that future. And as you were talking about that, the first time we talked, and as I've sort of had the pleasure of becoming more familiar with your ideas and with your work on Haunt Camp, I've been thinking about how like how responsibility doesn't have to be a heavy thing. It can be a fun, hmm. creative, weird, lighthearted thing. And I'm curious, like, first of all, what you think of that, but also like if you think if you think that's true and if you think that's good, which I think you do, <laughs> but I'm excited <laughs> to hear you talk about it. How do we do that? Like, what are some things you've learned in terms of like, how can we simultaneously hold that sense of responsibility to the future, which can feel heavy, but do it in a way that like feeds us and, and, and nurtures us and lets us be like our, our weird, silly, absurd, creative selves as well. Yeah, I think I, I am, I'm fully on board with that very, very obviously. And I like what you said. Yeah, it doesn't have to feel heavy. And I think that if even, even to put it in, in serious tones, like for me, it doesn't feel heavy. For me, it feels like, it feels like the antidote to the kind of the growing pessimism that I've had in my life. And I'm, I'm not all that old. I'm a millennial. So I'm kind of twice a teenager, but I, like I remember I remember my ideals kind of as a teenager and maybe in college and as a young activist, you know, and then I, I can look back at myself and, and especially like, you know, my early twenties and feel I have gotten more cynical and and I do feel like a little less hope than I did at that time. And a lot of it was also kind of like working up against the culture that we have very resourced older generations. I mean, that's kind of the way that it goes, but also feeling like a young person who was in need of some of that flow in terms of resources and mentorship to be going down towards the younger generation. I mean, I say, I feel like that's ultimately where the positivity lies is the younger generation. They're going to be the new originators of the ideas. They're going to be the ones who are inheriting this they're the ones who I feel like as we gain experience and resources, we really need to be in service to them to help realize their potential. I feel like culturally we're not, we're not doing that. And that's what feels like a really hopeless rut that we're stuck in. When I think of things such as climate, 
I think it's the the old guard has been kind of misusing and, and, and hoarding resources. And I and I really want my generation and, uh, and the new ones to, to feel very much giving back to who is coming next. Yeah, absolutely. I want to bring something else into it because I think culture and storytelling for me are such an important part of this civic love framework, the civic love movement. So there's there's something that I know, there's a story that I know you were really excited about. And actually I went as a film uh, and I went and saw it and I was thinking about you a lot during the film and wondering and kind of wishing that we could watch it together. Um, it's the Barbie movie. Right? And it's the Barbie movie. And I want to hear what <laughs> I want to hear. I was thinking about you and I was thinking about the work that we've done around like bringing imagination and, and into the into the the civic love space. And I want to hear, is there, uh, is there a connection between the Barbie movie and civic love? Oh, you're being serious. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm just <laughs> making a joke. Um, yes, <laughs> I, um, yeah, you know, there, there was, I did have this running joke through the summer when I, um, when I came back to Wallowa County, we also, I mean, you have to, you have to drive for hours to get to a movie theater out here. And part of this kind of frivolous summer fun was like, I'm going to decide to be really excited about the Barbie movie all summer long. Um, and it's not like, it's not like that was necessarily forced. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm certainly not going to defend it as the best movie I've ever seen. It's, it was more about the cultural fervor, but I really enjoyed what felt like, like so much fun excitement about something that was just like a little pervasive in these little ways. It was um, it was centering a femininity, which like isn't necessarily celebrated. It was celebrating frivolity and beauty and fashion and the color pink. And, um, you know, I think about like, like beauty aesthetics, color to me, they're, they're so important and they're so necessary. And it doesn't mean that they're not insincere, um, and honestly, when I think about civic love, I, I, I go in directions where I think about beauty, like just beautifying the spaces that, that we occupy. Um, it's, it's just really, it, it's, it's life giving to me. It's energizing to me. Um, but yeah, to, to bring it back to the Barbie movie, there was, it was like this cultural moment. Um, and I think it was also us like kind of coming out of pandemic isolation still, um, and yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't sum it up. It was, it was just like kind of a, a cultural fever that I could, that I could really get behind. And I mean, I was just really excited to see those sets, man. Those yeah. were, those were some <laughs> incredible sets. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like Michael Sarah as as Ken's friend deserves some sort of, some sort of award. I think I'm going to make one and send it, send it to Michael Sarah. Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah. I would not even count it among Greta Gerwig's best, but I, I will <laughs> count it as, as incredibly memorable. And uh, one of my dearest friends here still has freshly bleach blonde dyed hair to be celebrating just the season of Barbie. Beautiful. Um, so it lives on. Yeah. Well, 
I want one final question because I feel like this is something that's really interesting to me. And I think that um, I'd, I'd love to hear what you, what you have to say about it because of, you know, you talked to earlier about your, your work on Haunt Camp being place-based and, you know, being in the, in the beautiful, you know, mountains of, of Eastern Oregon, a, a small, a small town, um, a beautiful place and having this, this, haunted house camp out there. Um, and I think there is a connection with Barbie because one of the, the, in the Barbie movie, one of the things that I loved as I was sitting there thinking, wow, this movie that so many people are going to go see just because they think it's just about Barbie in a certain <laughs> way, it's a, uh, it's like a bit of a, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's telling, it is subversive. It's telling people like, Hey, it's okay to be your whole self. And until your whole, until you feel like, until you f- feel like you're free to be your whole self, like you're not going to show up in the best way you can for the world, right? I think also it, it was just about play. Like anytime there's kind of this cultural excitement about just doing something for the pure fun pleasure of it, I feel like that's such a rarity and it's and we need that levity. We just need to see more people dressing up in costumes, dressing up in hot pink to like go to the movies and uh, and experience this with other people. Like there was this very palpable sense of play around the entire release. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. You, you, yeah. I think you, you kind of, you saw, you saw where I was trying to go with that. And I think you went somewhere interesting with, with, with play. And I think, you know, one of the things that Lisa Lee, um, who with the National Public Housing Museum, who's been influential in co-creating the civic love framework, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. One of the things that Lisa talks about around civic love is, is pushing through and moving beyond binaries, you know, binaries that separate the idea of public and private binaries that separate the, you know, the, even, even that separate the body from the mind, you know, like where, what are these binaries that we hold? And by pushing beyond them, how do we sort of open up and, and expand what, our world can be. And so I think that one of the things that I find really beautiful about Haunt Camp is, is that, and then I, and I saw this when I went out and visited, visited you and got to spend time, um, at the, the, the concept meeting was I just saw, I saw young people not only being told that it was okay to be their playful, absurd, weird, creative selves, not just that it was okay, but that it was part of like what, the culture of that thing is. And I think that's wonderful. So the civic love framework as created by the National Public Housing Museum is many things, including this sort of open source framework for helping people access and expand this concept and practice of civic love. I wonder if you might open source your work a little bit. And for the people who are listening, who might be thinking, hey, yeah, I do want to like get into the the more playful, absurd, silly, wonderfulness aspect of, of this civic life experiment. Can you give like five questions that people might consider when they're hanging out with their friends and conceptualizing a haunted house? One of them, we were thinking about um, how to kind of push expectations by what is the role of the visitor within this haunted house? Like, how can we give the visitor purpose? How can we make the experience less passive for them? Can we give them a role? Can we give them a prop? Can we 
kind of set them back on their heels a little bit by doing something more unusual than what they're expecting, which is to kind of tiptoe through an exhibit and, and then just have people pop out and scare them. So we kind of play with that. How do we, how do we incorporate like props and games and a plot line into our, into our haunted house? Other things that we were thinking of is, is, I mean, we just had so many prompts that were in very esoteric directions. And I encourage anybody to do that as a brainstorming exercise. Just think of places and, and write down how you would go about haunting them. We had one student who, who really took it far afield. And I remember the inside of a bird's ear was one of the prompts that he wrote. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I have to say, I've never thought of that, about that before, but I have been thinking about it for about a year and a half since. <laughs> yeah, I think those are good. Yeah. And I encourage people, sit down with your, sit down with your friends. Think of what, think of what could be haunted. Think of what, how you can, yeah, have fun in the, have fun in the world. Well, if I can actually plug something for a second, please. if anybody out there has some bright ideas, we do have a haunt camp hotline, which you can call and leave us a voicemail. If you have any haunt ideas or any jokes you want to tell, or if you just want to leave us whatever weird message is going through your head, the haunt camp hotline is open for you. That number is 213-699-666. J.R. Reimut is an exhibit fabricator, community organizer, and prankster with a career in building museum dioramas and film sets, and the creator of Haunt Camp. She lives in Enterprise, Oregon. What makes you feel safe? What's your favorite gift you've ever received? What chore do you dislike doing the most? Have you ever done a choreographed dance? Do you remember any moves? Name one thing you learned from this conversation that you want to carry into your life. You may have heard a few names and books that you didn't catch in this episode. We've compiled them for you in our show notes on OregonHumanities.org. I want to take a quick second to ask you to do us a favor. We just shared our 25th episode of The Detour last month. If there's been a conversation or two that you enjoyed or something you heard here that got you thinking, please let us know by leaving a review. We really want to create episodes around questions and ideas that are important to you, and we're at a point where your feedback would be enormously helpful. At Oregon Humanities, we share stories, facilitate conversations, and support partnerships that demonstrate and depend on the idea that everyone belongs. We bring people together to talk about housing, mental health, political power, land use, criminal justice, and other difficult topics. Whether you participate in a community conversation, read our magazine, attend a training or workshop, or listen to this podcast, you're doing your part to encourage belonging through curiosity, conversation, and understanding. Gifts to Oregon Humanities help Oregonians explore challenging questions and celebrate collective joy. Visit OregonHumanities.org to donate now or find us in the Willamette Week Give Guide through December 31st. The Detour is produced by Kieran Bond. 
Dave Friedlander is our editor. Adam Davis is our host. Ben Waterhouse, Karina Brisky, and Alexandra Powell Bugden are our assistant producers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>